Please join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, you have told us that if we abide in your word, that's what makes us your disciples. And as we abide in that word, we will know the truth, and that truth will set us free. Even here in our own day on this subject of male and female marriage and children. Father, set us free from the the lies of the world and set us free and liberate us to live before you without fear of man and know your blessing. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, In last week's teaching, we worked our way through verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 19, and we looked at what male and female are and the implications of being made that way. We examined the process of the creation of male and female, and the image of God in the male and female, and then the tasks that God gave the male and female to pursue together. Today, we move on to Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, and dig into marriage, the creation and implementation of marriage. Here's our text again, Matthew 19, beginning verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let not man separate. So I want to pick up here in the first phrase of verse 5, which is just those two words, and said. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said. So in verse 4, Jesus begins his answer to the Pharisees about divorce by saying, he who made them at the beginning. And then he quoted one phrase of Genesis 1.27, and then he connected that phrase to Genesis 2.24 with those two words, and said. So let's turn to Genesis 2 to understand the significance of those two words. So first of all, Genesis 2.24 was spoken at the wedding of Adam and Eve. Yes, there was a wedding, not with a white dress and a tiered cake, certainly, but there was a wedding nonetheless. Now you might ask me how in the world I could say such a thing because the word wedding doesn't appear anywhere in Genesis 1 or 2, and uh, we don't read of them reciting wedding vows. That's a fair question. Well, here's how we know that there was. So in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, we read that God made the woman 
and brought her to the man. And then the man, Adam, clearly spoke, verse 23, and then someone else spoke, 20, verse 24, and we're going to find out who that was. And then in verse 25, we had to have a little commentary that tells us that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. So who is said to be naked in that verse? The man and the woman? No, the man and his wife. So God brought a single unmarried woman to a single unmarried man, and then something changed that single woman into a wife, a married woman. What was that? Well, a wedding of some kind and consisting in some way of two parts. First, there was a voluntary exchange of marriage vows. We don't read what those vows were. And then there was the consummation of those vows, the completion of those vows, the act that puts those vows into action, sexual intimacy. So those two things together change a single woman into a married woman. And in the Hebrew and the Greek, a woman who belongs to a man, to the man that she herself possesses. So vows and consummation. And then the woman, this bride, then can say, my beloved is mine and I am his. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. Romantic, isn't it? Yeah. And then let's go back to Genesis 2 here. In verse 22, God brings the woman to the man. And then in verse 25, the man, Adam, responds, and he speaks. So imagine the two of them standing there together, maybe hand in hand, and, and looking each other in the eye, like happens today. But this is the very first time they've seen each other. Imagine that. And Adam says this. This one, this female human being is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So these are profound words, and they are prophetic words. Profound because Adam is verbalizing and understanding a deep understanding that this woman is intimately connected with him in a very special way, and therefore he has moral obligations to her and she to him. And they are profound because they enshrine in language and dictionaries and history books that the woman was taken out of the man, was fashioned from the very flesh and bone of the man, an intimate connection neither of them could ever escape, not even today, as much as some still attempt to do so. And this connection is what makes human marriage what it is. And it sets uh, humanity apart and unique from the animals. And these are prophetic words. Why? Because Paul uses Adam's words in Ephesians 5 verse 30 in reference to the intimate connection between Christ and his bride, the church. He writes, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. Man, meditate on that for a little bit. 
I'm convinced that those words that Paul said right there are much more than figurative speech. And then after Adam spoke the words of verse 23, verse 24 goes on to say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, who spoke those words? The newer translations put Adam's words in verse 23 in quotation marks, but not verse 24. Because as I understand it, the Hebrew grammar tells them, tells the translators that Adam did not speak those words. So, who wrote, who spoke those words of verse 24? Now, Moses certainly wrote those words down, probably on a clay tablet. But was he writing commentary on Adam's words as if he was some kind of ancient John MacArthur? Or did God give Moses a new revelation that no one had ever understood before? Well, that can't be true because the whole world was, was following this pattern. So Moses is recording ancient history. He's recording some very important words that were spoken on the sixth day of creation at the first wedding in human history. So who spoke those words? Well, Jesus told us who. He said, who, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said. The same one who made mankind as male and female then had something to say about how being made that way would work itself out between the male and the female and join them together in marriage. So the words of Genesis 2.24 are God's words, no matter how you look at it. They, um, they, they're describing the physical reality of human life. They describe the pattern that God embedded in the male and the female, and they exert God's authority over marriage. God is declaring the law of marriage to that first couple, and they've been preserved right down to our day for us. And these words are true and faithful. So now look at the second phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. What is the reason a man leaves his father and mother? It's because he's male and she's female. That's the reason that he leaves. So, as we work our way through the rest of verse 5 here, we're going to see how being made as male will naturally operate to impel the male to seek out a female and then join him to that female in marriage and lead them both then to become one flesh, resulting in children, creating a family. The third phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5, reads like this. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. So first of all, remember that God 
spoke these words authoritatively to that first couple at their wedding. And he speaks here of a man in particular, not a woman. We can't uh, neutralize the gender here like happens today. God says that a man shall leave father and mother. Of course, the woman also ends up leaving her parents, but God focuses here on what a man does. Part of the reason is, part of this focus on a man is that these words are prophetic. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the man, the only righteous man, the manly masculine man, left his father to seek and then save his bride who was made from his flesh and bone. And this is also how marriages have normally formed from this beginning of time. The man leaving father and mother, the woman being given by her father into his protection. And it's actually only been within the last four or five generations that it's become more common for a woman to leave her home before she was married. After the rise of feminism, which asserts that women need no such protection. A man should leave his father and mother. In other words, a man, not a boy. So there's a necessary maturity in view here. The verb shall leave is in the future tense and the indicative mood. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, um, the future tense tells us that he will leave in the future, obviously, which just reinforces the idea of a boy growing up and maturing over time. And in the future, when he is ready, he moves towards marriage and he leaves his parents. Future tense indicative mood. The indicative mood conveys certainty. So this is what a man shall do. And as I understand it, the Hebrew grammar conveys a strong certainty. A man shall leave father and mother. Now, our culture hates that kind of language, teaching us that marriage and children maybe are something like a bucket list activity that you may, might eventually get around to when you decide you want to, and they may not be on your list. And if they aren't, well, so what? And certainly there is a level of human agency in this and God's providence, which is not easy to understand, and other realities of human life. But God placed in the male an urge so strong toward the female that to resist fulfilling that urge in marriage often leads into sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. God said the man shall leave. He's programmed to leave. He shall leave his parents for her as well as leaving behind friends who try to convince them that she will restrict his fun and freedom of action. Actually, marriage will liberate him into sacrificial love, where he should be living. So his relationship with his parents will be changed by God's design. He leaves behind his formative relationships and enters into his life relationships. And if he doesn't leave, there will be problems of many kinds. So God's intended pattern is for him to leave and be joined to a wife. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. The grammar lesson doesn't end there. This verb, shall leave, is in the active voice. 
meaning that it's the, the, the man is the one who is take, gonna, going to take the action. He's going to leave them by his own accord. So, in other words, then he shall leave his father and mother. They should not have to push him out. He shall leave them. They should not hold on to him. He shall leave them, and they should prepare him to leave them from childhood. So that when his male body impels him to seek a wife, he has already prioritized marriage over other things, and he is ready to support a wife and children. He shall leave father and mother, but certainly not in disobedience to God's command to honor them. He should highly value their wisdom and should want their blessing on his actions, on his marriage. But he shall leave father and mother and place them as secondary to his wife, giving her priority, giving himself up for her so as to love her properly as Christ loved the church. So in the words of Proverbs 24, verse 27, his fields should be planted before he builds his house. He must have some direction and prospect for income then to support a wife and children before he gets married. And what is his mission? Well, to be fruitful and multiply for sure. And some part of subduing the earth and having dominion over living things. That's his mission. It's a big mission. And he should be capitalizing on his God-given strengths and talents and training to be useful in his particular spot where he ends up. And forgive me for being crass, but he should not be like a male dog responding to a female in heat. No. The image of God in him demands love and self-control. Sacrificial love and self-control. He needs to grasp the far-reaching consequences of his sexuality and hers, recognizing God's purpose in the design of their bodies for bringing new eternal souls into the world. So a young man should approach a young woman in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. He needs to have come to a point in life where he will pound a stake in the ground and say something like this. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, does he understand all where that statement is going to lead him? Likely not. But that commitment then will direct his decisions, even the daily activities of his life. So, He's called to lead in the worship of God in every aspect of his life. And so he then should be able to uh, paint a picture for her of how he intends to live his life in light of that commitment to the Lord. And then her input will make it all the better. And she'll bring into his life a wonderful light and glory in his life of worship, which he sees laid out ahead of him. He needs a helper in his mission. He needs a wife. So he should be mature enough not to need another mother. He needs a helper that will come alongside with him, not him following her. 
He interrupts her life, and now she must decide if she is fit for him and able to go where he is headed. Maybe she can't or shouldn't. Can he lead her? Will she follow him? And he should be busy at work creating an environment in his life and in his house that's conducive for marriage, establishing living conditions that would make a young woman flourish and enable her to flourish and enjoy life. So it seems to me that a young man who fears the Lord, a young woman who fears the Lord, would be happy to stand right beside a young man like that and lean into the yoke of life with him to help him all her life long. And so above all else, he should seek a young woman who fears the Lord. And nothing is more important than that for him. Nothing. Should he be attracted to her? Yes, of course he should. But the word of God tells us that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. And some say that that means ultimately meaningless. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is the one who shall be praised. Proverbs 31, verse 30. So if I can just say this, there's a crying need for young men to stand up in this way today, to make a declaration like that, and then to lead it on in worshiping God. Lead his wife and children, loving them and leading them in the fear of the Lord. Because after all, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. His wife should be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of his house. His children like olive plants all around his table. Psalm 128, verses 1 through 3. So, being made as male and female, first acts to separate a new couple out toward marriage, and then it works to create a bond between the two of them in the marriage. The fourth phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5, reads like this. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And be joined to his wife. So this verb be joined, is also in the future tense an indicative mood. This means that the joining of a man to his wife is what shall certainly happen when he leaves his parents and woos her and then marries her with her voluntary consent, obviously. The, the Greek verb be joined means to glue one thing to another, to glue so glue binds two separate things together. And this gluing of marriage joins a single man and a single woman together and then unites them into a single unit. So this simple verb here teaches us that just from common sense that God intended that marriage would be for life. If you try to break two glued pieces of wood apart, you're not going to break the glue. You will break the pieces 
And that's just an illustration of divorce, painful, damaging, and shattering. And this verb, be joined, is in the passive voice, meaning that it's not the one taking, not, it's not the one taking the action to, the man is not the one taking the action to make the gluing happen. The passive voice tells us that an outside force is at work on the man to glue him to the woman. In other words, the gluing doesn't happen because he makes it happen. The, the gluing just happens to him. So who or what is acting upon the man to glue him to his wife? Well, it's God, of course, who is doing this. He's the first cause of it all. But how does God join the two? What means does he use to do this? Well, the primary way God glues the man to his wife is that he created them as male and female. They're naturally prepared. They're primed, you might say, to be glued together. So how has the male been prepared and made ready to be glued to a female? Well, to begin with, he is fascinated by her. She's female. He, he has a strong inborn desire for sexual intimacy with her. He has a manly urge to protect her. He develops a paternal care for the children that are born out of their union. And his body and mind are made to protect her and made for the labor that's necessary to provide for her and the children. So what does the glue consist of? Well, maybe things like the good friendship and society that develops between them. They enjoy each other. The, the, the uniting of their vital interests in, in economic partnership and fortune that they develop together. And, and the shared comfort and support that they enjoy together day by day. The, the shared joys and the sorrows of life. The shared delight in and love for their children the intense love relationship between them and the stability of their marriage commitment brings to their life and then the sexual intimacy they continually share. So you could maybe think that um, this glue gets smeared all over both of them and then they get pressed up against each other as they live life together. And this glue, just like glue does, um, uh, in, on the molecular level, it sinks down into the details of their life and it grabs a hold of both of them and bonds them together. And then it cures and hardens over time to form a very strong bond. Intended to last for a lifetime. So this close bond is God's creation. And it is good. In fact, it is very good. It brings health and stability and power into their marriage. And this strong bond is very necessary for the well-being of their children. They need it. It's also very good for their extended family on both sides. And it's very good for the village that they live in. And it's very good for the church that they attend. And then the nation that they are citizens of. Does this glue restrict their freedom? It sure does. Yes. And they are to happily yield to this glue, not strain against it, or they will end up not glued together. They're not to abandon each other. They're not to hold each other at arm's length. They're to be in close proximity to each other, not to smother each other, no. 
but they're to be joined and glued together in heart and mind. But when this bond is broken in divorce, both of them are damaged. Their children are damaged much more than our culture will admit. And all the surrounding relationships are also strained and damaged. Those who once were friends and family often become enemies. And that clearly points to the public nature of marriage. Marriage has many public consequences. Our sloppy thinking sometimes leads us to believe that if, if God is gluing a man to his wife, there should be no conflicts or divorce, right? And I don't pretend to comprehend God's providence in all of this, but the fact that he actually brings a man and a woman together doesn't mean that they won't sin against each other, as compatible as they might seem to be. And if that man or woman fail to heed God's instructions clearly in his word, or they, they refuse godly wisdom in their choice of a spouse, then they may find themselves in a living hell. But even in the best of choices, they will still sin against each other. Just because God is involved doesn't mean that sin won't destroy the marriage. So from this clear picture of uh, this gluing together, there's a, there's a picture that should arise in our minds. The scriptures say that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So the gluing is of a man, singular, to his wife, singular. One man glued to one woman, glued together for life. One man to one woman, not to many women, not to a different woman whenever he pleases, and not to another man, not to an animal. The last phrase of Matthew 19, 5 reads like this. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So being made as male and female first operates to separate out a couple toward marriage, and then it operates to create a bond between that couple in the marriage, and then lastly, being made as male and female is completed or fulfilled or consummated when the two become one flesh. Grammar, again, the, the verb shall become is in future tense. Indicative mood meaning that becoming one flesh is what shall certainly take place and must take place when they marry. Why? Because he's male and female. That's why. He's male, she's female. Excuse me. It is the logical and natural consequence of being made male and female, the natural endpoint that God intended in the leaving and the gluing, and it must be engaged in. 1 Corinthians 2 verses, 7, verses 2 through 5. If not, there's a problem that must be resolved and quickly. 
The verb shall become is in the middle voice, meaning that it is the two of them together that take the action to become one flesh. One flesh. The word one refers to a unity of parts that makes up one whole thing, like many grapes make up one cluster, or many atoms make up one molecule, or many members make up one body. The word flesh refers to the physical flesh or the body of a living creature. So then one flesh is literally a uniting of the bodies of the male and the female. The author or the action the two must take to become one flesh is to engage in sexual intimacy, which has the natural God-created and God-intended outcome of producing a baby, a new unique person made up of material from both of them. And this act, along with the marriage covenant, makes the two of them into a single entity, a single complete reproducing unit, otherwise known as a family. And so right here we can answer a question that maybe has arisen in your home and maybe in your own mind, which is this, who has God's permission and blessing to engage in sexual intimacy? Is it unmarried teenagers? No. Is it unmarried oldsters? No. Is it unmarried couples living together, young, middle-aged, or old? No. Is it unmarried couples in a courtship soon to be married? No. Who has God's permission? It's the man who has left his father and mother and has been joined to a wife in a valid marriage. Those two, the man and his wife, have God's blessing to become one flesh. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. And this shows us that courtship should focus on finding out if this kind of comprehensive unity and bonding is possible between a particular man and a particular woman. The world around us has got it all turned around. Becoming one flesh must come after the mutual respect is established and after the marriage commitment is made. And then after the wedding, in a warm environment, an atmosphere of tender affection and honor between the two, becoming one flesh then brings a clean and healthy and fruitful bond. It must come after the wedding because God made this act to bring forth babies born to parents who, who embrace them whenever they come. So, Jesus has just laid down in front of the Pharisees, and thank God it's been preserved for us, the law of marriage here in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. He set forth the principles that drive human life. And based on what we've seen, we can say this and kind of expand it out a little bit. That in the beginning, mankind was purposely created in the sexual form of male and female, the female made from the very flesh and bone of the male. This is the foundation of marriage. And it is also the reason why a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a woman in marriage. 
he will reach a point in life when he is impelled to, in this direction because he is male and she is female. The marriage relationship shall operate to glue the man to his wife in a permanent bond, uniting them in all aspects of life. And then the two of them, as they unite in sexual intimacy, make their marriage vows real. They become one flesh, one single, complete, reproducing unit, a new legal entity, the family. God intended that, that marriage be the platform on which a family is built. And providing a safe and loving container into which children are born and nurtured to their maturity. Marriage also provides the couple necessary help, mutual support, and companionship as they work to fulfill God's mission. And it provides a safe environment for healthy human sexual expression. So we've seen this whole string of cause and effect in those few sentences that just reveal the wisdom and the glory of God and his creation of male and female and marriage. But Jesus isn't finished yet. In Matthew 19, verse 6, he draws the logical conclusion to this law of marriage by saying this, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. They have entered into a new state of reality, the two. A unique bond has been created, and those two become a unit. They become a family. Something is different about them. Therefore, they are to think of themselves as a unit, and they are to act as a unit. They shouldn't think of themselves as two individuals with individual agency. The world should view them as a unit and treat them as a unit. They are one flesh, a single complete reproducing unit, a family which is the very building block of human life. And then Jesus brings human responsibility into the picture by saying this. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So what is it that Jesus is saying that God has joined together? Is it particular married couples? Well, he said what God has joined, not those whom God has joined. He's, he's referring here to a, a thing, an entity, not married couples. So, without getting deep into the weeds about, of grammar, uh, the grammar here in this verb, has, as in has joined together, tells us that in the past, God created something in a single distinct act. And that created thing remains valid and true for all time. That's the Greek grammar. We don't see that in the English. 
So this admonition not to separate certainly does apply to a particular married couple in their particular difficulties. But what did God create in the past that remains valid and true for today and should not be separated or severed or broken apart? Answer, he created this social and legal relationship we call marriage, which joins a man and a woman in a particular way for his particular purposes. So to separate or break apart marriage would be something like reinventing it or reimagining it or getting rid of it or, and replacing it or reconstructing it for different uses and purposes. And thus circumvent all of God's purposes for human life in doing that. We can take it a step further. Jesus said, let not man separate. He didn't say, let not a man separate. So he's not referring here to individual men separating from their wives. But man, mankind. So when marriage and its purposes are devalued and modified in cultures that man builds up and in legal systems then individuals within those cultures are set free to break their marriage commitments whenever they please, thus destroying marriage itself. Some of the rabbis in Jesus' day were doing just that very thing. That's what they were up to. They were devaluing marriage, they were avoiding its purpose, and actively working to water down God's legal system and his restrictions so that they could divorce their wives for just any old reason, similar to what's happening in our culture today. So instead of breaking marriage apart, God's law of marriage must be publicly recognized, publicly upheld, and applied into cultures, taken account of in philosophies, and protected in the law codes of nations. Mankind is not to destroy marriage by legalizing or tolerating adultery, abandonment, abuse, or neglect, or destroy marriage by allowing babies to be murdered inside or outside the womb, or destroying marriage by saying that there is no such thing as male and female. God imposes this law of marriage on all of mankind, not just Christians. He embedded this in the bodies and the souls of every male and female, and he commands mankind for all of time to live according to it. So there's no such thing as Christian marriage, only marriage. So in closing, I just want to look at this verb that Jesus uses here in verse 6 joined together. So this is a different Greek word than the word joined that he used back in verse 5, which meant to be glued together. This word joined together here in verse 6 means to be yoked together. A, should, a picture should come up in your mind of two oxen that are brought up side by side and physically tied together with a wooden yoke that is placed around their necks. 
And that allows them then together to exert the power of their bodies to accomplish work. So marriage yokes a man and a woman together like that. And this yoke enables them to pull a load together that neither of them could pull on their own. And it enables them to accomplish work together that neither of them could accomplish on their own. And of course, the load they carry and the work they're called to accomplish is that mandate of God in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and play some little part in subduing and filling the earth and having dominion over living things. So to be effective in that work, both of them must pull the man as a man and the woman as a woman. There's no other combination that works to accomplish God's purposes. And if the two struggle against each other or they struggle against the yoke, well then no work gets done. So the two yoke together, again, another picture of this legal entity that's uh, formed in the eyes of the law of family. And a family has certain legal jurisdiction and the authority and power to govern itself, as well as legal responsibilities and obligations. This yoke actually publicly recognizes in law each particular couple as legally and financially responsible for themselves and for their children. No one else should be responsible to take care of them unless they need help. And they're responsible for the nurture and discipline of their children and for the labor and economic activity necessary to support their life as a family. And the family, by its very nature, possesses legal right to raise its own children. It owns its children to own property and assets and, and then to distribute inheritance. So marriage is a public relationship. It's not a private relationship. What happens in private has very public and legal implications. And so this redefining of the family that's going on around us, it's destroying the family as a legal entity, places the raising of children into the hands of the state which ignores the uniqueness of God's creation of male and female and circumvents God's purposes for the family. So God was very wise. The power of human sexuality must be contained within moral boundaries in order for it to be life-giving and not destructive. And marriage establishes that boundary, the marriage covenant. So there's safety and blessing in this law of God and so when we obey God by living together within his whole, uh, the holiness of God, uh, according to his ways, we experience a blessing in life we just are not going to know in any other way. Because after all, marriage as God created it is for human flourishing. God made us to flourish in marriage. Have you not read don't you understand that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would enlighten us and help us to open our eyes and see your good creation and to rejoice in it and to revel in it and to yield to it. Father, I pray that every husband here, including me, that we would love our wives as Christ loved the church and lay our lives down for them, nourishing them and cherishing them. And that the wives here would lovingly and gladly submit to their husbands in an orderly fashion and help them. And I pray that the children here would be raised by their father and mother in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and honor them and obey them. Father, bless us in these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.